ultimate expression. Christ is the ultimate revelation and the manifestation. Here last week, he talked about mystery becomes reality. Well, the mystery of God, the revelation of the salvation of God is ultimately manifested in Jesus Christ. And so we see in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God becomes flesh and reveals the nature of who God truly is. Now, Jesus did not have to seek his own glory. He did not have to grasp his glory or to pursue his glory because he was God and his father had promised to take care of his glory. He says in John 8, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. So Jesus didn't have to grasp after his glory. So the object of Christ's glory is the glory of his father. He was free to to, to give himself for the glory of his Father, but the means of Christ's glorification is the cross. Father, the hour has come. The supreme manifestation of Christ's glory that he prays about here is the cross. He keeps referring to the hour in John, in the Gospel of John. Uh, here Christ prays nothing less than the horrid crucifixion. And throughout the book of John, uh, he mentions, my hour has not yet come. In John 7, 30, he says, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And, and, and John 8, 20 says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now, but now, Jesus says, the hour has come. It has arrived. And Jesus in this prayer has to determine to complete his mission of going to the cross, to be nailed on the cross with these four-inch iron spikes on a Roman cross that was dropped into the earth, and he hung there. And that is how Christ was glorified and how he brought glory and honor to the Father. Uh, we heard from the John 12, we heard that from the passage of Scripture where, where the Greeks started to come to see Jesus. We'd like to see Jesus, they tell Philip. And Philip comes to Jesus. And as soon as Jesus hears that the Greeks wanted to see him, he then says this, the hour has come. He says the hour has come uh, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he talks about that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it multiplies. And Jesus is talking about his own death. And he talks and he prays to the Father, should, he, should God save him from this hour? No, this is why I came. And, and the voice comes out of heaven as Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And the voice says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And in that, that answered prayer, his Father is talking about the cross. D.A. Carson said the very event by which the Son was being lifted up in horrible ignominy ignominy and shame was that for which we would be, pray, would be praised around the world by men and women whose sins he had borne. The hideous profanity of Golgotha means nothing less than the son's glorification. And so some have said, how in the world can the cross be such 
a vehicle of glorification. Because the Romans despised the cross. It was something shameful. Not even a citizen of Rome was allowed to be executed on the cross. And the Jews saw the cross as a, as a curse of God. Anyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. And so here it's a, a place of cursing. It's a place of shame. It's, it's, but for God, it is the glory of God. God's view of the cross was his glory. And why is that? Well, because on the cross, the character of God, the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and mainly the love of God is, is declared and revealed and manifested on the cross. John Stott said this, if you want to see Jesus as he really is, you must see him on the cross. The cross is the brightest and clearest display of his nature and purpose. The cross, on the cross we see the holiness and, the, and Christ's hatred of his sin and his determination to, comes, that, and to come to terms with it. We see his justice in condemning sin even in the person of his son. And we see his love in securing the salvation of sinners at enormous cost. The glory of God is seen. The revelation of God is given in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we see the object of Christ's glorification, which is the Father's glory. We see the means of Christ's glorification, which is the cross, the suffering of Jesus on the cross for sinners. And ultimately, we see the goal of Christ's glorification, which is us knowing God, us knowing God. And Jesus says right in the same sentence, Father, glorify your son that your son might glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. So not only is the glory of God the ultimate end in the glory of Christ, but so is the salvation of sinners. That sentence connects the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father with the salvation of sinners. It is through his death on the cross that he might give eternal life to all those that God had given him. And what is eternal life? And Jesus says that they might know you, the only true God. And so knowledge, eternal life, is not just like just living forever. Eternal life is principally knowing this eternal God and knowing him intimately, knowing him personally, knowing who he is in all of his manifestations. And so we find that knowing God is being restored in a right relationship with God as beloved sons and daughters. It's being restored in our righteousness and holiness that we were designed and originally created for. We're being restored in true knowledge of ourselves and with the world. Uh, we are being restored to reflect who we are as beloved sons and daughters of God. And this is part of the whole restoration, the redemption, the reconciliation that God intended in the world. In the middle of the scripture in John chapter 12, where Jesus talks about 
the wheat falling, unless, a, a, unless the wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. But this is what it says in verse 25. And he's turning to his disciples, and he says this. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And what Jesus is saying here, to trust him, to follow him, to believe in him. A disciple of Jesus is one who also follows Christ in dying. This, this is a picture that a true son, a true daughter of, of Christ is one who recognizes that the way we receive glory is not something that, is something that we achieve, but it's something that we are given by Christ. The scriptures show us that we were actually designed for glory. God allows us to share in his glory, not that we will ever become divine as one who emanates or gives out and emits glory like God, like the sun gives light and the moon reflects it. We are like the moon who reflects the glory of God, but we become partakers and recipients of glory that we might reflect that glory. In John 17, 22, just a few verses later, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, to the disciples. You have been given glory, he says. And we are called to eternal glory. In 1 Peter, he talks about how the God of all grace has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. And then it says that in Christ, we're being transformed more and more into uh, the increasing glory. Uh, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. We're becoming more like Jesus. That's what this passage tells us. And we also find that nothing can threaten our glory. No suffering can threaten, no losses in this life can threaten your glory. Uh, we find in 2 Corinthians 4 the exact opposite. In fact, the sufferings and the losses that you face in Christ are being transformed into an eternal weight of glory for us that far outweighs all the losses that we would ever experience. And so Christ in this passage reveals for us that we can know this Father. We can know this God. Uh, and he prays that we would enter into this intimate relationship and that we would know him as he truly is. And what is the key way that we learn and grow in our experience with God? It is through prayer. Robert Rayburn says, Eternal life is not just unending existence. It is the personal knowledge of the personal God and his son, Jesus Christ. It is the knowledge of fellowship and a relationship of love. Eternal life, D.A. Carson said, is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of an everlasting one. You know, uh, in Buddhism, uh, they use prayer wheels. But there really is no relationship with a personal, living, infinite God with whom they come to know, trust, and love. In Islam, 
Prayer is one of the key pillars of, a, of religious devotion. It, it involves a, re, a rep, repetition of a formula in Arabic accompanied with a strictly prescribed set of ritual stances and genuflections and prostrations. But it is not the outworking or the practice of a personal relationship with God. They do not claim God and address God with the intimate address as Father. That is not allowed in Islam. But Jesus teaches his disciples in the very first address, how should they pray? They say, Father, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches us how to come into the presence of the Holy God and to bring the aspect of a family intimate relationship with him. Only in Christianity is there the promise that an individual human being can know God can know him really, individually, privately, affectionately, seriously, can talk to him and ask him for things and be heard. Only in Christianity is there the promise that the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, would stoop to be known by us. And so we are encouraged to come and pray, to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And how do we do that? Yes, it's through reading the scriptures, but it's also praying that God wants to meet us in prayer. Uh, some time ago, in an article on relying prayer that we had in our, one of our faith reports, Burnett Abraham said this, God is the lover. And Ab Burnett Abrahams, by the way, is uh, one of our prayer leaders in our church. But she says, God is, and she's, by the way, she prays for us every Sunday morning, and she welcomes more prayer warriors to come to pray with her. But she says, prayer, God is the lover who is absorbed and enamored with us. He listens to us as we pour out our hearts, talk incessantly about him, ourselves, our loved ones, jobs, ups and downs, inner struggles, success, failures, the world, injustices, the economy, religion, and politics. And we need to be praying more about all these things. And Paul Miller said this. He says, Jesus wants us to be without pretense when we come to him in prayer. Instead, we often try to be something we aren't. The gospel is the welcoming heart of God. God cheers when we come to him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers. Uh, the beautiful image and the illustration is when children just come into the, barge into the presence of their parents. Uh, they, they don't wait. They don't knock. They just come through the doors. And they just expect that they'll be received. And that's exactly how God the Father wants us to come to him as we seek to know him through prayer. And so Jesus prays for his glory, and he shows us the ordered glory for salvation. He shows us the object of glory is that he prays for his Father's glory. He shows us the means of his glory, which is the cross, and he shows us the, the, uh, the goal of his glory, which is knowing God, eternal life. And so the mission of Christ is not first about us. The mission of Christ, although it's for us, is not about us. The mission of Christ is first about God and the glory of God. That God the Father and that God the Son would be manifested, that his character and his wisdom and his righteousness would be manifested. God's rescue mission and salvation of sinners is not a man-centered mission. It is a God-glorifying mission. And so our salvation is about the display and the magnificence of our God. 
and all and our salvation, all of the excellencies of God, his character, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, are all manifested and displayed. And that's why Paul says at the end of Romans, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Our problem is not our desire and pursuit of glory. We were made in the image of God, and we were made to be glory bearers. We were built for glory, but the, our problem is the object of our glory. If the object of our glory is our independent selves and not God, we will be driven to endless frustrations. We, will, we are not made to be gods. We are made to be God's beloved daughters and sons. Our ordered rightful glory uh, is only known as we live and seek his glory to reveal his character and his glory in our lives. And so Paul can say, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, everything that you do, do all for the glory of God. And so the nature of true glory is not self-centered egoism, or, uh, but it is self-giving love. We only experience the glory that we are made for as we give glory to God. And the means, the source of our glory, if it's our efforts, our labors to achieve our significance, our fame in the world, our security in the world, we will never know, we will never, never be able to rest. Uh, we will only experience exhaustion and endless pursuit controlled by the opinions of others and the fear of failures. And we need to find our glory in resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross who exchanged our self-centered sin with his self-giving righteousness, who not only saved us from our sins and gave us his righteousness, but also has given us his glory. It is only by trusting in Christ, believing and resting in him alone, in his finished work on the cross, in that hour will we be able to find the glorious rest that we've been designed for. And how do we live in that glory of God? How do we experience that glory of God? How do we enter in to that relationship and that communion with God? Well, he gives us a great, he gives us a wonderful call to communion. This table represents the God of salvation, the God of glory.